Welcome to Volume 9 of The Mating Season. Chapter 22 The village hall stood in the middle of the high street, just abaft of the duck pond, erected in the year 1881 by Sir Quentin Deverell, but a man who didn't know much about architecture, but knew what he liked. It was one of those mid-Victorian jobs in glazed red brick, which always seemed to bob up in these old-world hamlets, and do so much to encourage the drift of the towns. Its interior, like those of all the joints of its kind I've ever come across, was dingy and foggy, and smelled in about equal proportions of apples, chalk, damp plaster, boy scouts, and the sturdy English peasantry. The concert was slated to begin at 8.15, and a few minutes before the kick-off, my own little effort not being billed till after the intermission, I wandered in and took my place among the standees at the back, noting dully that I should be playing to absolute capacity. The populace had rolled up in droves, though I could have warned them that they were asking for it. I'd seen the programme. I knew the worst. The moment I scanned the bill of fare, I was able to understand why Corky, that afternoon on my flat, had spoken so disgruntedly of the talent at her disposal, like a girl who's been thwarted and frustrated and kept from fulfilling herself and what not. I knew what had happened. Starting out to arrange this binge with high hopes and burning ideals and all that sort of thing, poor child, she had stubbed her toe on the fatal snag which always lurks in the path of the impresario of this type of entertainment. I allude to the fact that at every village concert there are certain powerful vested interests which have to be considered. There are, that is to say, diverse local nibs, who, having always done their bit, are going to be pretty cold and sniffy if not invited to do it again this time. What Corky had come up against was the Kegley Bassington clan. To a man of my worldwide experience, such items as Solo, Miss Muriel Kegley Bassington, and Duologue, a pair of lunatics, Colonel and Mrs. R.P. Kegley Bassington tell their own story. And the same thing applied to imitations. Watkin Kegley Bassington, card tricks, Percival Kegley Bassington, and rhythmic dance, Miss Poppy Kegley Bassington. Master George Kegley Bassington, who was down for recitation, I absolved from blame. I strongly suspected that he, like me, had been thrust into this painful position by force majeure and would have been equally willing to make a cash settlement. In the intervals of feeling a brotherly sympathy for Master George and wishing I could run across him and stand him a commiserating ginger beer, I devoted my time to studying the faces of my neighbours, helping to detect in them some traces of ruth and pity and what is known as kind indulgence. There was not a glimmer. Like all rustic standees, these were stern, implacable men, utterly incapable of taking the broad, charitable view and realising that a fellow who comes on a platform and starts reciting about Christopher Robin going hoppity, hoppity, hop, or alternatively saying his prayers, does not do so from sheer wantonness, but because he is a helpless victim of circumstances beyond his control. I was gazing with considerable apprehension at a particularly dangerous specimen on my left, a pleasure-seeker with hair oil on his head and those mobile lips 
to which the raspberry springs automatically, when a mild spatter of applause from the two bob seats showed that we were off. The vicar was opening the proceedings with a short address. Apart from the fact that I was aware that he played chess and shared with Catsmeat's current fiancée a dislike for hearing policemen make cracks about Jonah and the Whale, the Reverend Sidney Peerbright had hitherto been a sealed book to me, and this was, of course, the first time I'd seen him in action. A tall, drooping man, looking as if he'd been stuffed in a hurry by an incompetent taxidermist, it became apparent immediately that he was not one of those boisterous vicars who, when opening a village concert, bound on the stage with a whoop and a holler and give the parishioners a huge hello and slam across a couple of trebly salesmen and farmer-daughter stories and bound off beaming. He seemed low-spirited, as I suppose he had every right to be, with Corky permanently on his premises, doing the little mother and Gussie rolling up for practically every meal, and on top of that, a gorilla-like young Thomas coming and barking himself in the spare bedroom, you could scarcely expect him to bubble over with joie de vivre. These things take their toll. At any rate, he didn't. His theme was the church organ, in aid of which these grim doings had been set afoot, and it was in a vein of pessimism that he spoke of its prospects. The church organ, he told us frankly, was in a hell of a bad way. For years it had been going round with holes in its socks, doing the brother-can-you-spare-a-dime stuff, and now it was about due to hand in its dinner pail. There had been a time when he had hoped that the pulled-together spirit might have given it a shot in the arm, but the way it looked to him at the moment, things had gone too far, and he was prepared to bet his shirt on the bally contrivance going down the drain and staying there. He concluded by announcing somberly that the first item on the programme would be a violin solo by Miss Eustacia Pulbrook, managing to convey the suggestion that while he knew as well as we did that Eustacia was going to be about as corny as they come, he advised us to make the most of her, because after that we would have the Kegley Bassington family at our throats. Except for knowing that when you've heard one, you've heard them all, I'm not really an authority on violin solos. So I cannot state definitely whether La Poulbrooks was or was not a credit to the accomplices who had taught her the use of the instrument. It was loud in spots and less loud in other spots, and it had that quality which I have noticed in all violin solos of seeming to last much longer than it actually did. When it eventually blew over, one saw what the sainted Sidney had meant about the Kegley Bassingtons. A minion came on the stage carrying a table. On this table he placed a framed photograph, and I knew we were in for it. Show Bertram Worcester a table and a framed photograph, and you don't have to tell him what the upshot is going to be. Muriel Kegley Bassington stood revealed as a My Hero from the Chocolate Soldier Addict. I thought the boys behind the back row behaved with extraordinary dignity and restraint, and their suavity gave me the first faint hope I had had when my turn came to face the firing squad, I might be spared the excesses which I had been anticipating. I would rank my hero next after the yeoman's wedding song as a standee rouser, and when a large blonde appeared and took up the photograph and gave it a soulful look and rubbed her hands on the rosin and inflated her lungs, I was expecting big things. But these splendid fellows apparently did not war on women. Not only did they refrain from making uncouth noises with the tongue between the lips, one or two actually clapped, 
an imprudent move, of course, because taken in conjunction with the applause of the two barbers who applaud everything, it led to, oh, who will over the downs with me as an encore? Inflamed by this promising start, Muriel would, I think, willingly have continued, probably with the Indian love call. But something in her manner must have shown her that she couldn't do that here, for she shrank back and withdrew. There was a brief stage wait, and then a small bullet-headed boy in an Eton jacket came staggering on like Christopher Robin going hoppity-hoppity-hop, in a manner that suggested that blood relations in the background had overcome his reluctance to appear by putting a hand between his shoulder blades and shoving. Master George Kedley Bassington, and no other. My heart went out to the little fellow. I knew just how he was feeling. One could picture so clearly all that must have led up to this rash act. The first fatal suggestion by his mother that it would please the vicar if George gave the recitation, which he did so nicely. The agonised hoy, the attempted rebuttal, the family pressure, the sullen scowl, the calling in of father to exercise his authority, the reluctant acquiescence, the dash for freedom at the eleventh hour, foiled, as we have seen, by that quick thrust between the shoulder blades. And here he was, out in the middle. He gave us an unpleasant look and said, Ben Battle. I pursed my lips and shook the head. I knew this Ben Battle, for it had been in my own repertoire from my early days. One of those gruesome antiques with a pun in every other line, the last thing to which any right-minded boy would wish to lend himself, and quite unsuited to this artiste's style. If I had had the ear of Colonel and Mrs. R. P. Kegley Bassington, I would have said to them, Colonel, Mrs. Kegley Bassington, be advised by an old friend, keep George away from comedy, and stick to good sound dangerous Dan McGrews. His forte is grimness. Having said Ben Battle, he paused and repeated the unpleasant look. I could see what was passing through his mind. He wished to know if anybody out front wanted to make anything of this. The pause was a belligerent pause, but it was evident that it had been misinterpreted by his nearest and dearest, for two voices, both loud and carrying, spoke simultaneously from the wings. One had a parade ground rasp, and the other was that of the songstress who had so recently my heroed. Ben Battle was a soldier bow, they cried out. All right said George, transferring the unpleasant look in that direction. Ben Battle was a soldier bold and used to war's alarms. A cannonball took off his legs, so he laid down his arms. He added, crowding the thing into a single word. He then proceeded. Well, really, come, come, I felt as he did so. This is most encouraging. Can it be, I asked myself, that these rugged exteriors around me hide hearts of gold? It certainly seemed so, for despite the fact that it would have been difficult, nay impossible to imagine anything lousier than Master George Kegley Bassington's performance, it was producing nothing in the nature of a demonstration from the standees. They had not warred on women, and they did not war on children. Might it not quite easily happen, I mused, that they would not war on Worcesters? Tails up, Bertram, I said to myself. And it was with almost a light heart that I watched George forget the last three stanzas and shamble off, giving us that unpleasant look again over his shoulder. And in the exuberance with which I greeted the small man with the face like an anxious marmoset, 
Adrian Higgins I gathered from my program. My profession I subsequently learned, King Deverell's courteous and popular grave digger, there was something that came very close to being carefree. Adrian Higgins solicited our kind attention for impressions of woodland songsters, which are familiar to you all. And while these did not go with any particular bang, the farmyard imitations which followed were cordially received, and the drawing of a cork and pouring out a bottle of beer which took him off made a solid hit, leaving the customers in excellent mood. With the conclusion of George's recitation, they were feeling that the worst was behind them, and a few clenched teeth would see them through the remainder of the kegley Bassington offensive. There was a general sense of relaxation, and Gussie and Casmeet could not have had a better spot. When they came on, festooned in green beards, they got a big hand. It was the last time they did. The act died standing up. Right from the start, I saw that it was going to be a turkey, and so it proved. It was listless. It lacked fire and oomph. The very opening word struck a chill. Hello, Pat, said Catsmeat in a dull, toneless voice. Hello, Mike, said Gussie with equal moodiness. How's your father? He's not enjoying himself just now. What's he doing? Seven years, said Catsmeat glumly, and went on in the same depressed way to speak of his brother Jim, who, having obtained employment as a swimming teacher, was now often in low water. Well, I couldn't see what Gussie could have on his mind unless he was brooding on the church organ, but Catsmeat despondency was, of course, susceptible of a ready explanation. From where he stood, he had an excellent view of Gertrude Winkworth in row one of the two bob seats, and the sight of her looking pale and proud in something which I should say at a venture was muslin must have been like a sword thrust through the bosom. Just as you allow a vicar a wide latitude in the way of gloom when his private life has become cluttered up with corkies and gussies and thomases, so should you, if a fair-minded man, permit a tortured lover confronted with a girl he has lost to sink into the depths a bit. Well, that's all right. I'm not saying you shouldn't, and as a matter of fact, I did. If you had come along and asked me, has Claude Catamol Pirbright your heartfelt sympathy, Worcester? I would have replied, you betcha he has my heartfelt sympathy. I mourn in spirit. All I do say is that this Byronic outlook doesn't help you bang across your points in a Pat and Mike knockabout crosstalk act. The whole performance gave one a sort of grey hopeless feeling, like listening to the rain at three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon in November. Even the standees, tough, rugged men, who would not have recognised the finer feelings if you had served them up on a plate with watercress round them, obviously felt the pathos of it all. They listened in dejected silence, shuffling their feet, and I didn't blame them. There should be nothing so frightfully heart-rending in one fellow asking another fellow who that lady was he saw him coming down the street with, and the other fellow replying that that was no lady, that was his wife. An amusing little misunderstanding, you would say, but when Gussie and Catsmeat spoke those lines, they seemed to bring home to you all the underlying sadness of life. At first I couldn't think what the thing reminded me of. Then I got it. At the time when I was engaged to Florence Cray, and she was trying to jack my soul up, one of the methods she employed to this end was to take me on Sunday nights to see Russian plays, 
The sort of things where the old home is being sold up and people stand around saying how sad it all is. If I had to make a criticism of Cat's Meat and Gussie, I should say that they got too much of the Russian spirit into their work. It was a relief to one at all when the poignant slice of life drew to a close. My sister's in the ballet, said Catsby despondently. There was a pause here because Gussie had fallen into a kind of trance and was standing staring silently before him as if the church organ had really got him down at last and Catsby realising that the only moral support, if that was to be expected from this quarter, was obliged to carry on the conversation by himself a thing which I always think spoils the effect of these occasions. The essence of a crosstalk act is that there be wholesome give and take. You never get the same snappy zip when one fellow is asking the questions and answering them himself. You say your sister's in a ballet? said Catsmeat with a catch in his voice. Yes, Bigora, my sister's in the ballet. What does your sister do in the ballet? He went on taking a look at Gertrude Winkworth and quivering in agony. She comes rushing in, and she goes rushing out. What does she have to rush like that for? Asked Casmeet with a stifled sob. Faith and begob, because it's a Russian ballet. And too broken in spirit to hit Gussie with his umbrella, he took him by the elbow and directed him to the exit. They moved slowly off with bowed heads, like a couple of pallbearers who have forgotten their coffin and had to go back for it. And to the rousing strains of Hello, 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 a hunting we will go pom pom, Esmond Haddock strode masterfully onto the stage. Esmond looked terrific, anxious to omit no word or act which would assist him in socking the clientele on the button. He had put on full hunting costume, pink coat and everything, and the effect was sensational. He seemed to bring into that sombre hall a note of joy and hope. After all, you felt, there was still happiness of the world. Life, you told yourself, was not all men in green beards saying, Faith and Bigora. To the practice I like mine, it was apparent that in the interval since the conclusion of the scratch meal, which had taken the place of dinner, the young squire had been having a couple. But as I often say, why not? There's no occasion on which a man of retiring disposition, with an inferiority complex, and all the trimmings, needs the old fluid more than when he is about to perform at a village concert. And with so much at stake, it would have been madness on his part not to get moderately ginned. It is to the series of quick ones which he had absorbed that I attribute the confident manner of his entry. But the attitude of the audience must speedily have convinced him that he could really have got by perfectly well on lime juice. Any doubt lingering in his mind as to his being the popular pet must have been dispelled instantly by the thunderous applause from all parts of the house. I noted twelve distinct standees who were whistling through their fingers, and those who were not whistling were stomping on the floor. The fellow with the hair oil on my left was doing both. And now, of course, came the danger spot. A feeble piping at this point, like gas escaping from a pipe, or let us say a failure to remember more than an odd word or two of subject matter, and a favourable first impression might well be undone. True, the tougher portion of the audience had been sedulously stood beers over a period of days, and in return had entered into a gentleman's agreement to be indulgent, but nonetheless it was unquestionably up to Esmond Haddock to deliver the goods. He did so abundantly, 
and in heaping measure. That first night over port, when we had been having our run-through, my thoughts at the outset had been centred on the lyric, and I had been too busy polishing up Aunt Charlotte's material to give much attention to the quality of his voice. Later on, of course, I'd been singing myself, which always demands complete concentration. When I was on the chair, waving my decanter, I'd been aware in a vague sort of way of some kind of disturbance in progress on the table. But if Dame Daphne Winkworth on her entry had asked me my opinion of Esmond Haddock's timber and brio, I should have had to reply that I really hadn't noticed them much. He now stood forth as the possessor of a charming baritone, full of life and feeling, and above all, loud. And the volume of sound is what you want at a village concert. Make the lights flicker and bring plaster down from the ceiling and you are home. Esmond Haddock did not keep her simply for those who had paid the price of admission. He took in strollers along High Street and even those who had remained at their residences, curled up with a good book. Casmeet, you may recall, in speaking of the yells which Dame Daphne and the Mrs. Deverell had uttered on learning of his betrothal to Gertrude Winkworth, had hazarded the opinion that they could have been heard at Bassingstoke. I should say that Bassingstoke got Esmond Haddock's hunting song nicely. If so, it got a genuine treat, and one of some duration, for he took three encores, a couple of bows and a fourth encore, and some more bows, and then the chorus once more over again by way of one for the road, and even then his well-wishers seemed reluctant to let him go. This reluctance made itself manifest during the next item on the programme. Glee, O come unto these yellow sands by the church choir, conducted by the school mistress, and murmurs at the back and an occasional hello, but it was not until Miss Poppy Kegsley Bassington was performing her rhythmic dance that it found full expression. Unlike her sister Muriel, who resembled a criterion barmaid of the old school, Poppy Kegley Bassington was long and dark and supple, with a sinuous figure suggestive of a snake with hips, one of those girls who do rhythmic dances at the drop of a hat and can be dissuaded from doing them only with a meat axe. The music that accompanied her act was oriental in nature, and I should be disposed to think that the thing had started out in life as a straight vision of Salome, but had been toned down and had the whistle blown on its spots in deference to the sensibilities of the Women's Institute. It consisted of a series of slitherings and writhings, punctuated with occasional pauses when, having got herself tied in a clove hitch, she seemed to be waiting for someone who remembered the combination to come along and disentangle her. It was during one of these pauses that the plug ugly with the hair oil made an observation. Since Esmond's departure, he had been standing with a rather morose expression on his face, like an elephant that has had its bun taken from it, and you could see how deeply he was regretting that the young squire was no longer with us. From time to time he would mutter in a peevish undertone, and I seemed to catch Esmond's name. He now spoke, and I found that my hearing had not been at fault. We want Esmond Haddock, he said. We want Haddock. We want Haddock. We want Haddock. We want Haddock. He uttered the words in a loud, clear, penetrating voice, not unlike that of a costermonger informing the public that he has blood oranges for sale, and the sentiment expressed evidently chimed in with the views of those standing near him. It was not long before perhaps twenty or more discriminating concert goers were also chanting, We want Haddock! We want Haddock! We want Haddock! 
We want Haddock! And it just shows you how catching this sort of thing is. It wasn't more than about five seconds later that I heard another voice intoning. We want Haddock! We want Haddock! We want Haddock! We want Haddock! And discovered with a mild surprise that it was mine. And as the remainder of the standees, some thirty in number, also adopted the slogan, this made us unanimous. To sum up then, the fellow with the hair oil, fifty other fellows, also with hair oil, and I had begun to speak simultaneously. And what we said was, We, we want haddock. haddock! We want Haddock! We want Haddock! We want Haddock! There was some shushing from the two barbers, but we were firm. And though Miss Kegley Bassington pluckily continued to slither for a few moments longer, the contest of wills could have but one ending. She withdrew getting a nice hand, for we were generous in victory, and Esmond came back on, all boots and pink coat, and what with him going a-hunting at one end of the hall, and our group of thinkers going a-hunting at the other, the thing might have occupied the rest of the evening quite agreeably, had not some quick-thinking person dropped the curtain for intermission. You might suppose that in my mood, as I strolled from the building to enjoy a smoke, I would have been elated. And so for some moments I was. The whole aim of my foreign policy had been to ensure the making of a socko by Esmond. And he had made a socko. He had slain them and stopped the show. For perhaps the space of a quarter of a cigarette, I rejoiced unstintedly. Then my uplifted mood suddenly left me. The cigarette fell from my nerveless fingers, and I stood rooted to the spot. I had just realised that, what with one thing or another, my disturbed night, my taxing day, the various burdens weighing on my mind and so forth, every word of those Christopher Robin poems had been expunged from my memory, and I was billed next, but two after intermission. Chapter 23 How long I stood there, rooted to the spot, I cannot say. A goodish while, no doubt, for this wholly unforeseen development had unmanned me completely. I was roused from my reverie by the sound of rustic voices singing, Hello, 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 a-hunting we will go, my lads, a-hunting we will go, and discovered that the strains were proceeding from the premises of the goose and cowslip on the other side of the road, and it suddenly struck me, I can't think why it hadn't before, that here might possibly be the mental tonic of which I was in need. It might be that all that was wrong with me was that I was faint for lack of nourishment. Hitching up the lower jaw, I hurried across and plunged into the saloon bar. The revellers who were singing the gem of the night's hit parade were doing so in the public bar. The only occupant of the more posh saloon bar was a godlike man in a bowler hat, with grey, finely chiselled features and a head that stuck out at the back, indicating great brain power. To cut a long story short, it was Jeeves. He was having a meditative beer at the table by the wall. Good evening, sir, he said, rising with his customary polish. I am happy to inform you that I was successful in obtaining the cosh from Master Thomas. I have it in my pocket. I raised a hand. This is no time to talk about coshes. No, sir. I merely mentioned it in passing. Mr. Haddock's was an extremely gratifying triumph. Do you not think, sir? Nor is it time for talking about Esmond Haddock, Jeeves. I'm sunk. Indeed, sir. Jeeves! I beg your pardon, sir. I should have said, really, sir, 
Really, sir, is just as bad. What the crisis calls for is a gosh or a gore blimey. There have been occasions, numerous occasions, when you have beheld Bertram Wooster in the bullion, but never so deeply immersed in it as now. You know those damn poems I was to recite? I've forgotten every word of them. I need scarcely stress the gravity of the situation. Half an hour from now, I shall be up on that platform with the Yugen Jack behind me, and before me an expectant audience, waiting to see what I've got, and I haven't got anything. I shan't have a word to say, and while an audience at a village concert justifiably resents having Christopher Robin poems recited at them, its resentment becomes heightened if the reciter merely stands there, opening and shutting his mouth in the silence like a goldfish. Very true, sir. You cannot jog your memory. It was in the hope of jogging it that I came in here. Is there brandy in this joint? Yes, sir. I will procure you a double. Make it two doubles. Very good, sir. He moved obligingly to the little hatch thing in the wall and conveyed his desire to the unseen provider on the other side, and presently a hand came through with a brimming glass. He brought it to the table. Let's see what this does, I said. Skin off your nose, Jeeves. Mud in your eyes, sir, if I may use the expression. I drained the glass and laid it down. The ironical thing, I said, while waiting for the stuff to work, is that, though, except for remembering in a broad general way that he went hoppity-hoppity-hop, I am a spent force as regarding Christopher Robin. I could do them Ben Battle without a hitch. Did you hear Master George Kedley Bassington on the subject of Ben Battle? Yes, sir. A barely adequate performance, I thought. That is not the boy, Jeeves! What I'm trying to tell you is that listening to him has the effect of turning back time in its flight, if you know what I mean. So that from the reciting angle I am once more the old Bertram Worcester of bygone days and can remember every word of Ben Battle, as clearly as in the epic when it was constantly on my lips. I could do the whole thing, without fluffing a syllable. But does that profit me? No, sir. No, sir, is correct. Thanks to George, saturation point has been reached with this particular audience as far as Ben Battle is concerned. If I started to give it to them too, I shouldn't get beyond the first stanza. There would be an ugly rush for the platform, and I should be roughly handled. What do you suggest? Have you obtained any access of mental vigour from the refreshment which you have been consuming, sir? Not a scrap! The stuff might have well been water. In that case, I think you would be well advised to refrain from attempting to entertain the audience, sir. It would be best to hand the whole conduct of the affair over to Mr. Haddock. What? I am confident that Mr. Haddock would gladly deputize for you. In the uplifted frame of mind in which he now is, he would welcome an opportunity to appear again before his public. But he couldn't learn the stuff in a quarter of an hour. No, sir, but he could read it from a book. I have a copy of the book on my person, for I had been intending to station myself at the side of the stage in order to prompt you, as I believe the technical expression is, should you have need of my services. Dashed good of you, Jeeves. Very white, very feudal. Not at all, sir. Shall I step across and explain the position of affairs to Mr. Haddock and hand him the book? I'm mused. The more I examined his suggestion, the better I liked it. 
when you're slated to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel, the idea of getting a kindly friend to take your place is always an attractive one. The only thing that restrains you as a rule from making the switch being the thought that it is a bit tough on the kindly F. But in the present case, this objection did not apply. On this night of nights, Esmond Haddock could get away with anything. There was, I seem to remember dimly, a poem in the book about Christopher Robin having ten little toes. Even that, dished out by the idol of King's Deverell, would not provoke mob violence. Yes, buzz straight over and fix up the deal, Jeeves, I said, hesitating no longer. As always, you have found the way. He adjusted the bowler hat, which he had courteously doffed at my entry, and went off on his errand of mercy. And I, too agitated to remain sitting, wandered out into the street and began to pace up and down outside the hostelry. And I had paused for a moment to look at the stars, wondering, as I always did when I saw stars, why Jeeves had once described them as quiring to the young-eyed cherubim, when a tapping on my arm in a bleating voice saying, I say, Bertie, told me that some creature of the night was trying to arrest my attention. I turned and beheld something in a green beard and a checked suit of loud pattern, which, as it was not tall enough to be cat's meat, the only other person likely to be going about in that striking get-up, I took correctly to be Gussie. I say, Bertie, said Gussie, speaking with obvious emotion, do you think you could get me some brandy? You mean orange juice? No, I do not mean orange juice. I mean brandy. About a bucketful. Puzzled, but full of the St. Bernard dog's spirit, I returned to the saloon bar and came back with a snifter. He accepted it gratefully and downed about half of it at a gulp, gasping in a struck-by-lightning manner, as I have seen men gasp after taking one of Jesus' special pick-me-ups. Thanks, he said when recovered. I needed that. I didn't want to go in myself with this beard on. Why did you take it off? I can't get it off. It's stuck on with spirit gum, and it hurts like sin when I pull at it. I shall have to get Jeeves to see what he can do about it later. Is this stuff brandy? That's what they tell me. What appalling muck. Like vitriol. How on earth can you and your fellow topers drink it for pleasure? What are you drinking it for? Because you promised your mother you would? I am drinking it, Bertie, to nerve myself for a frightful ordeal. I gave his shoulder a kindly pat. It seemed to me that the man's mind was wandering. You're forgetting, Gussie. Your ordeal is over. You've done your act. I'm pretty lousy it was. I said, unable to check the note of censure. What is the matter with you? He blinked like a chitten codfish. Wasn't I good? No, you were not good. You were cheesy. Your work lacked fire and snap. Well, so would your work lack fire and snap if you had to play in a knockabout crosstalk act and knew that directly the thing was over, you were going to break into a police station and steal a dog. The stars, ceasing for a moment to choir to the young-eyed cherubim, did a quick buck and wing. Say that again! What's the point of saying it again? You heard. I've promised Corky I'll go to Dobbs's cottage and extract that dog of hers. She will be waiting in her car near at hand and will gather the animal in 
and whisk it off to the house of some friends of hers who live about twenty miles along the London road, well out of Dobbs's sphere of influence. So now you know why I wanted brandy. I wanted brandy too, either that or something equally restorative. Oh, I was saying to myself, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrene. I spoke earlier of the tendency of the spirit of the Worcesters to rise when crushed to the earth, but there is a limit, and this limit had now been reached. At these frightful words, the spirit of the Worcesters felt as if it had been sat on by an elephant, and not one of your streamlined schoolgirl-figured elephants either, a big fat one. Cassie, you mustn't. What do you mean, I mustn't? Of course I must. Corky wishes it. You don't realise the peril. Dobbs is lying for you. Esmond Haddock is lying for you. They're just waiting to spring. How do you know that? Esmond Haddock told me so himself. He dislikes you intently. And it is his dearest hope someday to catch you bending and put you behind bars. And he's a JP. So is in a strong position to bring about the happy ending. You look pretty silly when you find yourself doing 30 days in the jug. For Corky's sake, I'd do a year. As a matter of fact, said Gussie in a burst of confidence, though you might not think it from the way I've been calling for brandy, there's no chance of my being caught. Dobbs is watching the concert. This, of course, improved the outlook. I don't say I breathe freely, but I breathe more freely than I had been breathing. You sure of that? I saw him myself. You couldn't have been mistaken. My dear Bertie, when Dobbs has come into a room in which you have been strewing frogs and stood face to face with you for an eternity, chewing his moustache and grinding his teeth at you, you know him when you see him again. But all the same! It's no good saying all the same. Corky wants me to extract her dog and I'm going to do it. Gussie, she said to me, you're such a help. I intend to be worthy of those words. And having spoken thus, he gave his beard a hitch and vanished into the sun at night, leaving me to pay for the brandy. I had just finished doing so when G's returned. Everything has been satisfactorily arranged, sir. I have seen Mr. Haddock, and as I anticipated, he is more than willing to deputise for you. A great weight seemed to roll off my mind. Then God bless Mr. Haddock, I said. There is splendid stuff in these young English landowners, Jeeves, is there not? Unquestionably, sir. The backbone of the country, I sometimes call them. But I gather from the fact that you have been gone the dickens of a time that you had to do some heavy persuading. No, sir. Mr. Haddock consented immediately and with enthusiasm. My delay in returning was due to the fact that I was detained in conversation by Police Constable Dobbs. There were a number of questions of a theological nature on which he was anxious to canvass my views. He appears particularly interested in Jonah and the Whale. Is he enjoying the concert? No, sir. He spoke in disparaging terms of the quality of the entertainment provided. He didn't like George Kegley Bassington much? No, sir. On the subject of Master Kegley Bassington, he expressed himself strongly and was almost equally caustic when commenting upon Miss Kegley Bassington's rhythmic dance. 
It is in order to avoid witnessing the efforts of the remaining members of the family that he has returned to his cottage, where he plans to pass what is left of the evening with a pipe and the works of Colonel Robert G. Ingersoll. Chapter 24 So that was that! You get the picture! Above in the serene sky, the stars choiring to the cherubim. Off stage in the public bar, the local toughies choiring to the pot boy. And down centre, Jeeves, having exploded his bombshell, regarding me with the eye of concern, as if he feared that all was not well with the young master, in which conjecture he was 100% right. The young master was feeling as if his soul had just received the Cornish Riviera Express on the seat of the pants. I gulped perhaps a half-dozen times before I was able to utter. Jeeves, you didn't really say that, did you? Sir. About Constable Dobbs going back to his cottage? Yes, sir. He informed me that it was his intention to do so. He said he desired solitude. Solitude, I said. Ha! And in a dull, toneless voice, like George Kegley Bassington reciting Ben Battle, I gave him the lowdown. That is a situation in what is sometimes called a nutshell, Jeeves. And not that it matters, for nothing matters now. I wonder if you have spotted how extraordinarily closely the present setup resembles that of Alfred Lord Tennyson's well-known poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, which is another of the things I used to recite in happier days. I mean to say, someone has blundered and Gussie, like the 600, is riding into the valley of death. Here's not to reason why, but here's to... Pardon me, sir, for interrupting you. Not at all, Jeeves. I had nearly finished. But would it not be advisable to take some form of action? I gave him the lackluster eye. Action, Jeeves? How can that help us now? And what form of it would you suggest? I should have said the thing had got beyond the scope of human power. It might be possible to overtake Mr. Finknottle, sir, and apprise him of his peril. I shrugged the shoulders. We could try if you like. I see little percentage in it, but I suppose one could leave no stone unturned. Can you find your way to Shade Dobbs? Yes, sir. Then heave ho, I said listlessly. As we made our way out of High Street into the dark regions beyond, we chatted in desultory vein. I noticed, Jeeves, that when I started telling you the bad news just now, one of your eyebrows flickered. Yes, sir. I was much exercised. Don't you ever get exercised enough to say coo? No, sir. Or crumbs? No, sir. Strange, I should have thought you might have done so at a moment like that. I would have said this was the end. Wouldn't you have? While there is life, sir, there is hope. Neatly put, but I disagree with you. I see no reason for even two pennies worth of hope. We shan't overtake Gussie. He must have got there long ago. About now, Dobbs is sitting on his chest and slipping the handcuffs on him. The officer may not have proceeded directly to his home, sir. You think there is a possibility that he paused at a pub for a gargle? It may be so, of course, but I am not sanguine. It would mean that fate was handing out lucky bricks, and my experience of fate... I would have spoken further and probably been pretty deepish, for the subject of fate and its consistent tendency to give men the elbow was one to which I had devoted considerable thought, but at this moment I was accosted by another creature of the night, a soprano this time, and I perceived a car drawn up to the side of the road. Hello, Bertie. 
Is that a silvery voice? Hiya, Jeeves. Good morning, miss. Said Jeeves in a suave way. Miss Pierbright, sir. He added, giving me the office. I had already recognized the silvery V. Hello, Corky. I said moodily. You waiting for Gussie? Yes, he went by just now. What did you say? Nothing, I replied, for I had merely remarked by way of passing comment that cannons to the left of him, cannons to the right of him, volleyed and thundered. I suppose you know that you've lured him on to a doom so hideous that the brain reels contemplating it. What do you mean, Bertie? He will find Dobbs at Journey's End, reading Robert G. Ingersoll. How long the officer will continue reading Robert G. Ingersoll after discovering that Gussie has broken in and is de-dogging the premises, one cannot... Don't be an ass, Bertie. Dobbs is at the concert. He was at the concert. He left early and is now... Once more I was interrupted when about to speak further. From down the road had begun to make itself heard in the silent night a distant barking. It grew in volume, indicating that the barker was headed our way, and Corky sprang from the car and established herself as a committee of welcome in the middle of the fairway. What a chump you are, Bertie, she said with some heat. Pulling a girl's leg and trying to scare her stiff, everything has gone according to plan. Here comes Sam. I'd know his voice anywhere. boy, Sam. This way. Come to mother. What ensued was rather like the big scene in The Hound of the Baskervilles. The bang and the patter of feet grew louder, and suddenly out of the darkness, Sam Goldwyn clocked in, coming along at a high rate of speed, and showing plainly in his manner how keenly he appreciated the termination of the sedentary life he'd been leading these last days. He looked good for about another fifty miles at the same pace, but the sight of us gave him pause. He stopped, looked, and listened. Then, as our familiar odour reached his nostrils, he threw his whole soul into a cry of ecstasy. He bounded at Jeeves as if contemplating licking his face, but was checked by the latter's quiet dignity. Jeeves views the animal kingdom with a benevolent eye, and is the first to pat its head and offer a slice of whatever is going, but he does not permit it to lick his face. Inside, Sam, said Corky, when the rapture of reunion had had the keen edge taken off it, and we had all simmered down a bit. She boosted him into the car and resumed her place at the wheel. Time to be leaving, she said. The quick fade-out is what the director would suggest here, I think. I'll be seeing you at the hall later, Bertie. Uncle Sidney has been asked to look in for coffee and sandwiches after the show, and I was not included in the invitation, I don't think. Still, I shall assume I was. She clapped spurs to her two-seater and vanished into the darkness. Sam Goldwyn's vocal solo died away, and all was once more still. No, not at all, to be absolutely accurate, for at this moment there came to the eardrum an odd sort of hammering noise in the distance, which at first I couldn't classify. It sounded as if someone was doing a tap dance, but it seemed pretty improbable that people would be doing tap dances out of doors at this hour. Then I got it. Somebody, no two people, was, or should I say were, herring toward us along the road, and I was turning to cock an inquiring eyebrow at Jeeves when he drew me into the shadows. I fear the worst, sir, he said in a hushed voice, and sure enough along it came. In addition to the stars quiring to the young-eyed cherubim, 
there was now in the serene sky a fair-sized moon, and as always happens under these conditions, the visibility was improved. By its light, one could see what was in progress. Gussie and Constable Dobbs were in progress, in the order named. Not having been present at the outset of the proceedings, I can only guess at what had occurred in the early stages, but anyone entering a police station to steal a dog and finding Constable Dobbs on the premises would have lost little time in picking up the feet, and I think we can assume that Gussie had got off to a good start. At any rate, at the moment when the runners came into view, he had established a nice lead and appeared to be increasing it. It is curious how you can be intimate with a fellow from early boyhood and yet remain unacquainted with one side of him. Mixing constantly with Gussie through the years, I had come to know him as a nude fancier, a lover, and a fathead, but I never suspected him of possessing outstanding qualities as a sprinter on the flat. I was amazed at the high order of ability he was exhibiting in this very specialized form of activity. He was coming along like a jackrabbit of the western prairie, his head back and his green beard floating in the breeze. I liked his ankle work. Dobbs, on the other hand, was more labored in his movements, and to an eye like mine, trained in watching point-to-point -point races, had all the look of an also-ran. One noted symptoms of roaring, and I am convinced that had Gussie had the intelligence to stick to his job and make a straight race of it, he would soon have outdistanced the field and come home on a tight rein. Police constables are not built for speed. Where you catch them at their best is standing on street corners saying, Pass along there! But, as I was stressing a moment ago, Augustus Finknottle, in addition to being a flat racer of marked ability, also is a fathead, and now, when he had victory in his grasp, the fat-headed streak in him came uppermost. There was a tree standing at the roadside, and suddenly, swerving off course, he made for it, and hoisted himself into its branches. And what do you suppose that was going to get him? Only his diseased mind knew! Ernest Dobbs may not have been one of Hampshire's brightest thinkers, but he was smart enough to stand under a tree. And this he proceeded to do. Determination to fight it out on these lines, if it took all summer, was written on every inch of his powerful frame. His back being toward me, I couldn't see his face, but I have no doubt that it was registering an equal amount of resolution. And nothing could have been firmer than his voice, as he urged upon the rooster above, the advisability of coming down without further waste of time. It was a fair cop, said Ernest Dobbs, and I agreed with him. To shut out the painful scene, which must inevitably ensue, I closed my eyes. There was an odd chunky sound, like some solid substance striking another solid substance, that made me open my eyes up again. When they were opened, I could hardly believe them. Ernest Dobbs, who a moment before had been standing with his feet apart, and his thumbs in his belt like a statue of justice putting it across the evildoer, had now assumed what I had heard described as a recumbent position. To make what I am driving at clear to the meanest intelligence, he was lying in the road with his face to the stars, while Jeeves, like a warrior sheathing his sword, replaced in his pocket some object which instinct told me was small but serviceable and constructed of India rubber. I toddled across, and drew the breath in sharply as I viewed the remains. The best you could have said of Constable Ernest Dobbs was that he looked peaceful. Good Lord, Jeeves, I said. I took the liberty of coshing the officer, sir. He explained respectfully. I considered it advisable in the circumstances. 
as the simplest method of averting unpleasantness. You will find it safe to descend now, sir. He proceeded addressing Gussie. If I might offer the suggestion, speed is of the essence. One cannot guarantee that the constable will remain indefinitely immobile. This opened up a new line of thought. You don't mean he'll recover? Why, yes, sir. Almost immediately. I'd have said that all he wanted was a lily in the right hand and he'd be all set. Oh, no, sir. The kosh produces merely a passing malaise. Permit me, sir. He said, assisting Gussie to alight. I anticipate that Dobbs, on coming to his senses, will experience a somewhat severe headache. But... Into his life a little rain must fall. Precisely, sir. I think it would be prudent for Mr. Finknottle to remove his beard. It presents too striking a means of identification. But he can't. It's stuck on with spirit gum. If Mr. Finknottle will permit me to escort him to his room, I shall be able to adjust that without difficulty. You will? Get on with it then, Gussie. Aye. Said Gussie, being just the sort of chap who would stand around saying A at the moment like this. He had a dazed air as if he too had stopped one. Push off. Aye. I gave a weary gesture. Remove him, Jeeves. Very good, sir. I would come along with you, but I shall be occupied elsewhere. I need about six more of those brandies, and I need them quick. You're sure about this living corpse? Sir? I mean living. Really, is the mot just? Oh, yes, sir. If you will notice, the officer is already commencing to regain consciousness. I did notice it. Ernest Dobbs was plainly about to report for duty. He moved, he stirred, he seemed to feel the rush of life along his keel. And this being so, I deemed it best to withdraw. I had no desire to be found standing at the sick bed when a fellow of his muscular development and uncertain temper came to and started looking about for responsible parties. I returned to the goose and cowslip at a good speed and proceeded to put big business in the way of the hand that came through the hatch. Then, feeling somewhat restored, I went back to the hall and dug in my room. I had, as you will readily understand, much food for thought. The revelation of this deeper coshing side to Jeeves's character had come as something of a shock to me. One found oneself wondering how far the thing would have spread. He and I had had our differences in the past, failing to see eye to eye on such matters as purple socks and white dinner jackets, and it was inevitable, both of us being men of high spirits, that similar differences would arise in the future. It was a disquieting thought that in the heat of an argument about, say, soft-bosomed shirts for evening wear, he might forget the decencies of debate and elect to apply the closure by hauling off and socking me on the frontal bone with something solid. One could but trust that the feudal spirit would serve to keep the impulse in check. I was still trying to adjust the faculties to the idea that I'd been nursing in my bosom all these years, something that would be gratefully accepted as a muscle guy by any gang on the lookout for new blood, when Gussie appeared, minus the shrubbery, he had changed the check suit for a dinner jacket, and with a start I realized that I ought to be dressing too. I'd forgotten that Corky had said that a big coffee and sandwiches binge was scheduled to take place in the drawing room at the conclusion of the concert, which must by now be nearing the God Save the King stage. There seemed to be something on Gussie's mind. His manner was nervous, as I hurriedly socked shuttered an evening shoot myself, he wandered about the room, 
fiddling with the object art and the metal piece. And as I slid into the form-fitting trousers, there came to my ears the familiar sound of a hollow groan. Whether hollower than those recently uttered by self and cat's meat, I couldn't say, but definitely hollow. He'd been staring for some moments at a picture on the wall of a girl in a poke bonnet cooing to a pigeon with a fellow in a cocked hat and tight trousers, watching her from the background, such as you will always find in great profusion in places like Deverell Hall. And he turned now and spoke. Bertie, do you know what it is like to have the scales fall from your eyes? Why, yes, scales have frequently fallen from my eyes. They've fallen from mine, and I'll tell you the exact moment when it happened. It was when I was up in that tree, gazing down at Constable Dobbs and hearing him describe the situation as a fair cop. That was when the scales fell from my eyes. I ventured to interrupt. Half a second, I said, just to keep the record straight. What are you talking about? I'm telling you, the scales fell from my eyes. Something happened to me, in a flash, with no warning. Love died. Whose love? Mine, you ass. For Corky. I felt that a girl who could subject a man to such an ordeal was not the wife for me. Mind you, I still admire her enormously, and I think she would make an excellent helpmate for somebody of the Ernest Hemingway type who likes living dangerously. But after what has occurred tonight, I'm quite certain in my mind that what I require as a life partner is someone slightly less impulsive. If you could have seen Constable Dobbs' eyes glinting in the moonlight, he said and broke off with a strong shudder. Silence ensued, for my ecstasy at this sensational news item was so profound that for a moment I was unable to utter anything. Then I said, Whoopee! and in doing so may possibly have raised my voice a little, for he leaped somewhat and said he wished I wouldn't suddenly yell whoopee like that because it made him bite his tongue. I'm sorry, I said, but I stick to it. I said whoopee and I meant whoopee. Whoopee! Whoopee, with the possible exception of hallelujah, is the only word that beats the case, and if I yelled it, it was merely because I was deeply stirred. I don't mind telling you now, Gussie, that I have viewed your passion for young Corky with concern, pursing the lips and asking myself dubiously if you were on the right lines. Corky is fine and, as you say, admirably fitted to be the bride of the sort of man who won't object to her landing him on the whim of the moment in a cell in one of our popular prisons. But the girl for you is obviously Madeline Bassett. Now you can go back to her and live happily ever after. It will be a genuine pleasure to me to weigh in with the silver egg boiler or whatever you may suggest as a wedding gift. And during the ceremony you can rely on me to be in a ringside pew singing Now the laborer's task is over, like nobody's business. I paused at this point for I noticed he was writhing freely. I asked him why he writhed and he said, Well, wouldn't anybody writhe who had got himself into the jam he had? and he wished I wouldn't stand there talking rot about going back to Madeline. How can I go back to Madeline, dearly as I would like to, after writing that letter, telling her it was all off? I saw that the time had come to slip him the good news. 
Gussie, I said, all is well. No need for concern. Others have worked while you slept. And without further preamble, I ran through the Wimbledon continuity. At the outset, he listened dumbly, his eyes bulging, his lips moving like those of a salmon in spawning season. Then, as the gist penetrated, his face lit up. His horn-rimmed spectacles flashed fire, and he clasped my hand, saying rather handsomely that, while as a general rule he yielded to none in considering me the world's premier half-wit, he was bound to own that on this occasion I had displayed courage, resource, enterprise, and almost human intelligence. You've saved my life, Bertie. Quite all right, old man. But for you... Don't mention it. Just the Worcester service. I'll go and telephone her. A sound move. He mused for a moment. No, I won't, by Jove. I'll pop right off and see her. I'll get in my car and drive to Wimbledon. She'll be in bed. Well, I'll sleep in London and go there first thing in the morning. You'll find her up at about shortly after eight. Don't forget your sprained wrist. Bar Jove, no. I'm glad you reminded me. What sort of a child was it you told her I'd saved? Small, blue-eyed, golden-haired and lisping. Small, blue-eyed, golden-haired and lisping. Right. He clasped my hand once more and bounded off, pausing at the door to tell me to tell Jeeves to send on his luggage and I, having completed the toilet, sank into a chair to enjoy a quick cigarette before leaving for the drawing-room. I suppose in this moment of bien-être, with the heart singing within me and the good old blood coursing through my veins, as I believe the expression is, I ought to have been saying to myself, Go easy on the rejoicing, cocky. Don't forget that the tangled love lives of Catsmeat, Esmond Haddock, Gertrude Winkworth, Constable Dobbs, and Queenie the Parlourmaid remain still unstraightened out. But you know how it is. There come times in a man's life when he rather tends to think only of self, and I must confess that the anguish of the above-tortured souls was almost completely thrust into the background of my consciousness by the reflection that fate, after a rocky start, had at last done the square thing by Bertram Worcester. My mental attitude, in short, was about that of an African explorer who, prompt shinnying up a tree, has just contrived to elude a quick-tempered crocodile, and gathers from a series of shrieks below that his faithful native bearer had not been so fortunate. I mean to say, he mourns, no doubt, as he listens to the doings. But though his heart may bleed, he cannot help his primary emotion being one of sober relief that, however sticky life might have become for native bearers, he personally is sitting on top of the world. I was crushing up the cigarette and preparing to leave, feeling just ripe for a cherry sandwich and an invigorating cup of coffee, when there was a flash of pink in the doorway and Esmond Haddock came in.